gentlemen. Uh, welcome, warm welcome to today's uh, industry talk on web series. Um, we have a wonderful panel, their names already there. Um, I want to uh, introduce you to Ingrid Kopp, the moderator for today, and she will introduce the panel. Welcome. Not yet. Oh, now I am. Okay, fantastic. Hello, welcome. Um, so before I introduce uh, the fantastic panelists we have for this panel on the bright future of short form, fi short form filmmaking, um, I just want to say that we really want, this is quite a small room, so we'd really like to have a conversation all the way through rather than wait for a Q&A at the end. So if you have any questions, we've got mics on both sides. So just put your hand up at any point um, if you'd like to interrupt, if you'd like to ask any of the panelists anything, if you have questions that are specific to what we're talking about at the end, uh, at that moment, you don't need to wait till the end because we really want to make sure that we're answering the questions you have. Um, and now I'm going to introduce our amazing panelists. Um, they're actually going to talk a lot about their work, so I'm just going to do very, very uh, general introductions, but Amy Dotson is the incredible deputy director of, uh, of IFP in New York City, um, supporting filmmakers across a wide range of um, uh, genres and projects. Um, she's really doing incredible work for many, many years, and is, uh, for the last couple of years, been doing web series. Um, so she's going to talk to you a little bit in a minute about how they've been working with filmmakers around web series and the economy of web series and the potential for web series. Uh, so a little bit of a, the sort of like business and creative landscape of web series. And then Bianca Jeeva is going to talk about her incredible uh, short form filmmaking work. Some of you may have seen her present here already. Um, really beautiful work that's very much driven by her experience in radio and with audio. And she brings audio and uh, video and, and, and photography together in a really beautiful way. So I think that's a lovely way of bringing the, the importance of audio into this discussion. And then Alexandra Brachet from Upian, who is probably one of the people responsible for some of the best interactive web work out there in the storytelling space. He's done work from Gaza Zero to uh, Prison Valley, uh, and now to Do Not Track, which he's gonna be talking about today, but really, really incredible. Um, beautiful high production value work, so it's really exciting to have him here. And I'm also super biased because we uh, at the Tribeca Film Institute funded uh, Do Not Track, and I think it's awesome. There's my plug. So, <laughs> so I'm Ingrid Kopp from the Tribeca Film Institute. Uh, until recently, living in New York, uh, and I just moved to South Africa, but I'm still consulting with them. And one of the things that I've been really, really interested in in my work uh, in the interactive department. Um, uh, at, the, at the TFI is this idea of, um, so I keep thinking about this, and, and I know I'm not the only person who's, who's, uh, who's said this, um, this before, but I keep thinking about this idea of like, you know, the, the expression, if all you have is a hammer in your hand, then everything starts to look like a nail. And one of the things that I've been thinking about so much over the last few years working in the interactive space with uh, work for the, interactive work for the web, apps, narrative games, and virtual reality is, what does everything look like when you have one of these in your hands? You know, like how are you problematizing the, the storytelling space that we're in when you have a phone that can do so many things and, and that can be used in so many different ways to, to both film and to watch films and, um, and to share that work, right? So I think one of the things that's so interesting about the space is that media is now being produced differently, but it's also circulating differently. And I think, um, Something that I've been also thinking about a great deal recently is this idea of the difference between distribution and circulation, and how with a lot of this web work, it's actually circulating rather than being distributed. Because distribution has a sense that you know you have a strategic plan, and you 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 put that plan into action, and you know exactly where things are going to go, 
and and then and then you're done, right? With circulation, you don't really have any control over that. You sort of put stuff out on the on the web, and then you sort of see where it goes, and you hope that you've done enough work to make sure that it goes to all the places you want. But you've got this audience who also have their own audiences, right? This idea of the audience having an audience, and what does that what does that mean for how media is circulating now? And then you've also got all these new platforms and spaces where um, filmmakers can make work. So you've got places like the New York Times Obdocs who are showing short work. You've got Charlie Phillips at The Guardian who's uh, doing some really interesting work with short form documentary. You've got the new Field of Vision with uh, Laura Poitras, AJ Schnack and uh, Charlotte Cook who are working with filmmakers to tell contemporary stories. Uh, again, short form mostly. Um, and then you've got obviously Vice. You've got some interesting brands like Patagonia doing really, really amazing documentary work. Uh, and then you've got all the sort of big media publications um, who now have huge video units, BuzzFeed, uh, Vox, The Atlantic, The New Yorker. I, I've noticed now when I read The New Yorker, there's always a video at the bottom. Um, so there's, there's short form video everywhere and it's circulating in really interesting ways. You've also got, um, I don't know how many of you uh, follow AJ Plus, but like AJ Plus's news bites on Facebook are incredible and they get so many hits. So I'm just, I'm always watching what's happening in the news, on the news side as well. Um, and I think one of the things that's really fascinating to me is sort of really paying attention to stuff outside of the documentary industry, because we do sometimes tend to sort of look at what's happening within it without actually seeing the broader picture. So that is a very, very sort of, that's my sort of broad, like why I'm interested in this, this space and why I think both interactive storytelling and, and short form content is so fascinating in this networked web world we live in. Um, and I think with that, um, oh, and the role of social media, sorry, that was the other thing. So just attached to this idea of the audience having an audience, um, you know, what does it mean now when people can, can, can share information and share videos and talk about those videos and talk back to those videos in, 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 in such nuanced ways now? Um, and, you know, and I think some of that is great and some of that's maybe not so great. I mean, you're also creating spaces for uh, bullying and bad messages to spread. So, you know, I don't want to pretend that this is all wonderful and that I've got this sort of great Pollyanna-ish view. I think, you know, just given what's happening in the world right now, we know that's not true. So I want to grapple with the, the less great sides of this circulating networked world that we live in too. All right, so I think before I hand over to Amy, I would just like you to see this video, which I'm sure you've all seen. It's from a few years ago, um, but it's David Lynch, the wonderful David Lynch, talking about the joys of watching films on your phone. We could just play that. Now, if you're playing the movie on a telephone, you will never in a trillion years experience the film. You'll think you have experienced it, but you'll be <clears throat> cheated. It's a, such a sadness that you think you've seen a film on your fucking telephone. Get real. Uh, now, David if you're Lynch. playing... <laughs> yeah, not, we don't need him again. Um, but, you know, the reason I showed that and the reason I think that's so wonderful is David Lynch actually ended up making this really lovely web series. Um, well, I guess it was a web series, Interactive Project called The Interview Project a few years ago. So I just thought it was really nice to show that and then, and then maybe check out The Interview Project if you haven't. Um, so that's David Lynch introducing... Amy, can I hand over to you and maybe you can talk a little bit about what you've been doing at, at IFP with web series. Thank you. All right. So for those of you 
you don't know, IFP is the oldest and largest organization for filmmakers and now artists across many storytelling mediums in the United States. So we've been around for 38 years. We like to think we're still young. Um, and we really made the switch two years ago into kind of broadening the type of content and content creators that we work with because we opened a, a physical space for the first time in New York City and it's 22,000 square feet and we have a number of different artists working out of the space, companies, entrepreneurs, with the hope that obviously technology and storytelling are starting to go more and more hand in hand and we want to remain kind of platform agnostic. So if you wanna tell your story on Snapchat or if you wanna tell a 90 minute documentary, we wanna have kind of the resources in place from development through audience engagement and, and frankly distribution to help you do that. So that's kind of who we are and what we do. Um, actually 10 days ago, so it's pretty fresh in my mind, we held our first um, what we call Screen Forward Labs. And the Screen Forward Labs were for short form content creators and I use that very um, intentionally. Um, they come from a number of different backgrounds. Some come from dance, some come from animation, some come from a historical perspective, some are quite kitschy and funny. Um, we have uh, a gay rap duo that's getting ready to take over the internet. Um, so it's a little bit of everything, but what really, our, our criteria for selecting them were, again, that they needed to come in with something already created. And again, that could be a sample all the way through their entire serialized content. And then helping them develop it further, figure out the financial strategy around it, figure out the marketing, the website of things, meaning does it have a website or not, and then what their ultimate goal is. And what we found fascinating by the end was that really everyone was in it together. There were no experts. So even the people speaking up front were questioning all of the things that the artists themselves were questioning. And it's really an exciting time because of that everyone feels like they're quite frankly even trying to figure out what to call this work. There's many people in the States that don't like web series as a, as a kind of title for it because it doesn't seem artistic enough, it seems populist, and it doesn't go with everyone's goals. There's others that hear content creator and think, ooh, that sounds kind of wonky. Uh, and then there's others that quite frankly are making uh, stories in the space that aren't quite defined. Uh, they don't really fit into one category, they fit into multiple categories. And so there's this, it was interesting, at the end of the labs, there was this real backlash against, this is great, we're making work, we all wanna support each other's work, but we all are such different individuals and making such different content with such, such different goals. How do we begin to build an ecosystem both creatively and financially around this? So you know, one of the things that we did get to the bottom of a bit was how do you actually make a living? How, do, how does the serialized content not become a dot, 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 and I make serialized content. You know, what I really am as a filmmaker, what I really do is work in advertising. A and what we, we kind of came up with was the following, and I think it could be really interesting to have this discussion, that it, in some ways it is a little bit like traditional filmmaking in that when you're putting out content and trying to find audience, but also trying to find a revenue source, you can either do it yourself, so what you're saying, circulating. Um, you and a small band of, of mighty warriors are getting out there and getting the word out there. There's also app-based partnerships. So there's a really powerful um, documentary strand through Snapchat now, and they put out two to four items a day, every day, wow, 365 days a year. I lost my mic, sorry. Then there's, um, as you were saying, there's um, curation. So it's Vimeo's staff pick of the day, or 
they're on Vox or Vice or one of these channels that don't necessarily pay for content, but they help to elevate the audience um, and get more eyeballs on your content so that by the time you're making the next work, maybe somebody does want to pick it up. There is um, kind of brand affiliation, and I must say I was quite shocked to see all of the different examples that were out there of different brand affiliations. It could be, as you were saying, a partnership with um, formerly print publications, so places like Condé Nast are paying pretty decent money for short-form content. It could also be something like Red Bull. I mean, I'm just saying it, you know, I don't work for Red Bull, but if you have anything to do with anything that Red Bull might like, they actually have kind of the largest pot of gold right now in terms of different, different kinds of entities that are supporting that kind of work. And then quite frankly, there's the, the, the kind of long-term methodology, which is I made this series because I want to be in the Tate Modern, or I made this series because frankly, I want it to go onto a television traditional platform. And most of our artists are making work for the long term. Um, not all of them, but they definitely see kind of the traditional channels in terms of revenue stream as the ultimate goal because they can't go on forever kind of making work to make work. And we all know that feeling quite well, especially in the States where there's not a lot of subsidized um, support of, of artists, either regional support or national support. So I'm gonna show two quick examples because a lot of what we do also is not only platform agnostic, but storytelling is the core and then we help them find what methodology to use it through. So the first one I'm gonna show is called uh, The Strange Eyes of Dr. Mize and it's had a really interesting trajectory. This woman has her work in the MoMA. She has all sorts of um, animated projects that she's done in the past. She's a professor and she quite frankly made a feature film and scrapped it. And you'll see that it's a very complex feature film and that it has animation, documentary, um, anthropology, and kind of uh, anthrom you know, anthropomorphic references, and then as well, narrative storytelling. And very briefly, the reason that she made this film is this is very much based on her true story. So she did not know at first whether to make this into kind of a full-fledged documentary or an animated project, but she wanted to kind of strive for something else. And so really it, it, it harkens back to kind of 1950s superhero films, for lack of a better way to put that. And she scrapped the film. She, she premiered it actually at Rotterdam and then pulled it and said, this is gonna be much more interesting in a serialized form. So if you don't mind just pushing the, the play button, this is the, the Strange Eyes of Dr. Mai's trailer and you'll get a good idea of just the mashup of, of A little bit of shake, a little bit of this. If you don't know how to do it, ask my little sis. Shove your baby in, twist it all around. Then you start a shaking and a moving all around. Wiggle like a snake, waddle like a dog. That is what you do when you do the huckle rub. soon. She is taking that now and serializing it and working with the Wexner Center, which is a fine arts organization in the States, as well as trying to find partners for this because this was a very traumatic experience for her where she, um, she had a life-threatening illness and kind of had to repair her body. And the story of this woman is that it's the same, but she starts experimenting with animals and taking on spider sense, bat-like hearing, all of these things um, as she gets the different transplants and grafts and different things. So it, it's a pretty interesting way to tell a personal documentary slash narrative slash animation slash if anybody has an idea what we want to call this, I'm all ears because we're still grappling with it too. 
Um, the second piece actually turned from, you know, kind of an autobiographical story about um, a young woman who was kind of at the top of the yoga game and, uh, you know, dating Leonardo DiCaprio and, you know, all this kind of just nonsense and then turned it around and went, this is actually the antithesis of this kind of spiritual journey that I actually went on. And so after kind of writing her own personal memoir, she decided to put a narrative spin on this. And you might think, okay, well, that's not actually documentary storytelling, but what we've found in, in the labs is people actually do, you know, whatever, whatever it's coming from, and that if it's coming from a place of truth and a place of personal story and no one else can tell it, then perhaps this transformation is becoming quite blurred. So, you know, long story short, we'll, we'll watch the trailer for this one too, which is obviously radically different in terms of form um, and in terms of, uh, that one's actually the pilot, I think the trailer is at the tippy top. Um, but she released this last week and we had to kind of convince her in terms of the release strategy, how, how this might be best. And what we said was two different episodes every Sunday night, um, which sounds a little bit like TV, right? Um, but what ended up happening was that she had a really excellent marketing campaign. She hired a traditional publicist. She uh, built up the audience of her yoga audience, but quite frankly, it was also lifestyle. It was people that actually were really putting the middle finger to yoga, as, as you'll see from the trailer. And funny enough, it's been 10 days and she has almost 175,000 hits. So it really, this one is much more about building an audience prior and then activating that. But again, it, it's very radically different from the first one, but you'll see. Hi. Welcome back to LA. This is the perfect space for me to manifest the vision of this new chapter of my life. I take teacher recommendations from our sister studios in New York very seriously. Hey, I'm Gina. And these are my senior instructors, Jesse and Ben. I think you're gonna fit in beautifully with our happy little family. What they want me to do there isn't even yoga. That is not pranayama. How many students signed up? Two signed up online and Seth makes three. Shit. LA is filled with teachers who can pack a class and would kill for your time slots. How many followers do you have? She has like a gazillion Instagram followers. How many Instagram followers do you have? You have the most certifications, but you're not the most popular. How long do you think it'll be before I can do a handstand? Potentially never. You can't call me anymore after you screw up and you don't have anywhere to go. I only practice with Jesse now. What the hell was that? Did you get fired for that? Teaching yoga is about projecting an image. It's not about being truthful. No fucking way. Bitch, you're going down. Lying corporate yoga slut. Are you high? You are totally fucked. I need a break from all these yoga freaks. Come on, use your ujjayi breath. <laughs> so that's a good place to start. I mean, we're really taking the stories at face value and then helping them um, in the development process, helping them in the finance process, mostly coming up with strategy and making kind of the proper introductions at an early stage so that there's an awareness of the projects then working with them very specifically on marketing. So you can see one's very grassroots, it's gonna go after kind of the comic book, art world, animation crowd, whereas this is going a much more slick, populist, in your face lifestyle um, and general population. I mean, people that are interested in yoga or have had 
doubts about the kind of commercialization of yoga and, or just want to laugh or are going to go after this project. And then lastly, we, we really are helping them figure out what is the ultimate goal. And I think with this kind of serialized content, that's the big question on artists and producers' lips is just how do I get from here to there? Is this a, a really legitimate art form that people are taking seriously in a, in a financial way or, or will they soon? Or is this something that is part of my larger creative platform that I'm putting together? So I think that that's kind of the, the balancing act right now. And I think those are great um, examples of, so, so one of the other things actually I meant to mention earlier is, I think another thing that's really interesting in these discussions, and maybe we could dig into this a little bit after you've shown your work is, um, you know, with, with the delivery mechanisms changing for this work, the, 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 the shapes of the, the, the way the content can be delivered can change, right? So, you know, with TV, you were kind of restricted by where the advertising had to go. So you ended up with those sort of three-act structures because you'd have to have the ads. And now you have like, I don't know, like 12-act structures because there's an ad break every five minutes, at least in the US. Um, so the way that you actually create your content is framed around the advertising breaks if, you, if, you're, if you're on a station that has advertising. Um, otherwise, it's built around the, the, the hours, right, the, the TV hours. And with uh, records in the old days, vinyl records, you could only get so many songs on a vinyl record, so you ended up with these concept records, and 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 people would listen to the whole records. Now we're you know it's much more singles and 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 mixes. So one of the things that I'm really really interested in is actually how is that changing the way that we deliver our our art, and 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 in some ways it's creatively incredibly liberating, but it's also really, really tricky, right, in terms of then how you fit that into business models. But I think those questions are really interesting in terms of what it allows you as a filmmaker to do. Um, like I could imagine um, for the, the, the first project you showed, sort of being able to experiment in that way um, is something that maybe the web allows you to do in a, diff in a different kind of way. And, and another example I thought was really interesting is podcasts. I, I listened to this really interesting podcast about podcasts, talking about the fact that, um, that the shape of podcasts is actually very different to radio because you don't have to remind people, you know, you don't have to say like, oh, you know, welcome back, this is blah, blah, and we're doing this because people will know exactly who you are and where you are because they've downloaded that podcast and chosen to listen to it. So actually, like, the podcast form is taking a different shape to radio. And I think those kinds of delivery formats and actually how it changes the the art and the content is really, really fascinating in this space. So I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, and I think this is a very, very, very good segue uh, for Bianca, whose middle name is Inga, so I like her even more now. <laughs> cool. What was the podcast about podcasts? I, I don't know. I can't. I'll, 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 I'll remember. Was it How Sound? Tape Radio? Maybe How Sound? Okay. Thanks. She, she knows everything about radio, so <laughs> I, I don't... I, yeah, talking about radio to you feels like uh, calls to Newcastle, as we say in England. Yes, please, an introduction to your relationship to the internet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my background is in radio, and that's what I had wanted to do my whole life. Um, and journalism, I was obsessed with This American Life as a child and would, like, um, binge on it in my bedroom. And I also had a newspaper out, so I would listen to it as I did the newspapers, which was really was a great image for my story leading up to here also. And... Um, uh, then I got to college and I kept doing radio and no one was listening to my stories because when you put audio on the internet, there's not really a good venue to listen to audio. Like no one 
sits down and listens to audio, like when you see it pop up on Facebook, which is, it doesn't even get, probably doesn't even make it to your Facebook feed because no one even does that. And for some reason, there's not really like the mechanism for when you see audio in your social channels to get it, like to trap it and like get it on your phone and you're not gonna sit there and watch it the way you would a video because nothing holds you there. Um, and so if you're not doing the type of stuff um, at the time that would fit onto a traditional show, it was pretty hard to get people to listen to your radio stories on the internet, especially like one-off, like five to 10 minute things, which is what I was doing. Um, so then I took a film class in school and started setting my radio stories to video, basically, and just using the video to play off the radio stories. But radio was mainly what I knew how to do, so I would make the radio story completely, um, but knowing that it would be a video, so sometimes in the interview I would reference the fact that this was gonna be a video um, or base the interview around the fact that we were making a video. Um, and then edit that radio story entirely and then come up with visuals um, that I thought would add something even more to the story, which is very hard to do because like one, there's no talking heads to fall back on. So there was a lot of black holes in the timeline where I was like, oh my God, what am I gonna put here? Um, which is really scary. And two, it's hard to come up with visuals that aren't like the obvious thing or the cheesy thing um, and really add to the story. So I had to get creative with that and I wasn't sure if it was gonna work. But I started doing some films in that style and just naturally they started doing well on the internet such that by the time I graduated, everyone was like, keep making those internet videos and no one wanted to hear my radio stories anymore because they had my radio stories, like the vessel through which they had taken off was internet videos. Um, but I thought it was kind of nice because like adding the visuals to the radio stories was a way to be a little more creative. Um, it was more work for sure and more time consuming and like costs more. Um, but it's, it's nice to have that like added sort of creativity to the process of making a radio story because sometimes as I was making it, while I'm interviewing the person, I'm having my associations with what they're saying. So it's really fun to be able to like film the association you're bringing to that conversation and it becomes like a, like sort of like the next level of like your interpretation of that conversation you had with that person. Um, and so, so yeah, those films were doing well on the internet and then I graduated and had like a, a year or two of just like, pretty much floundering, like really, like I had a lot of opportunities because those films had done well, but I wasn't, I like couldn't figure out how to, how to like make it work in the real world. Like my friends, like in my fantasy, it was like, oh, my friends and I will just like keep making films together forever the way we had in, the way we did in college. And then the reality was that they moved to different cities. A lot of them got day jobs, no one had time, like, space was finite, it was really hard to find like locations to use, all that stuff. So for like a year I tried to keep making stuff on my own in my apartment and it was just like, like really lonely and like, and hard and sad. And so finally I was like, all right, I need to get money. And I finally gave in, it was like, all right, this is gonna take money to like pay people and um, pay for locations and plan it out more. And honestly, like a little bit of the magic was lost in that transition because in order to get money, you really need to have a plan. So there wasn't like that same sort of just like 
wandering around, totally nurtured by professors experience and like for me a huge part of the process is having like a producer and editor who I trust and just finding someone whose taste that I really trusted the way I had had like film professors in school who are there not thinking about views or any of that stuff who are just there to nurture your creative process is so rare um, to find those people and so um, so yeah there was a lot of like not making anything for a while, or making stuff, but it was, it was just like, and it was all these one-offs, and I was like, how are, how are these things gonna go together? Like, where is this going? What does this mean? Um, and, and, then, uh, and then I ran into Ira Glass at the intermission of a dance concert, and it was like the next thing that happened, and I was like, hey, I have all these ideas that were like backlogged, and so then I went and did a web series at, at This American Life, but there's only two of them, so I don't know if we can call it a web series. <laughs> it's also like, it's like in that weird middle ground, like for some reason it seems like you need three to be a series, but when you have two, it's like this awkward couplet. Um, the, I, I did make three, but the third one is a radio story, because by the time I got to the third one, I was so tired of making videos, and I was also like, tired of competing on the space of the internet. Like I hate that distracted mindset that people are in when they're watching stuff on the internet, and I felt like I was like fighting, like I like like trying to be all like enticing for people to like watch my video, and I was like, I don't want to like coerce them or trick them into like having watched this. That was a feeling I got was that like a lot of people were like tricked by Facebook into like this thing just started playing, and like what is this, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and I didn't want to like barrage people with my content. I wanted them to like want to watch it and come to it because they were excited about it and yeah, I don't know, it's it's just like, it's different. Everyone has their different like motivations um, for what they're trying to make and everyone's obsessed with clicks and I'm like not convinced that those clicks are even real and there's like all these different places now that want to embed the videos and there's like strategies of like where to put it first and it's just like, like all this like noise around it. So I don't quite know what to make of that and other than be like, quit the internet or something, but like the thing I, I, the thing I do love about the space is that it's like the most public forum we have and it's so direct and you know, film festivals can, it's a very like s small, often elite group of people who go to them and it's such a pain to apply also. And so it's like <laughs> all those forms and stuff. So I don't know, I really, I, I have like this like love-hate relationship with the internet as a space um, for viewing content and uh, yeah, and I, like I had a question, like when you were talking like how many clicks is, is successful, like how do you know what's good? And, and, and you don't even know if people are watching it, right? Because it just, it just like goes out into the void. Um, so, sorry, I Do you <laughs> want to answer that question? How many clicks is enough clicks? It depends on what your goal is, right? It's like that age old thing. It's like, do you want love, money, or fame? Pick two, like if you're lucky. So but first of all, I don't even count Facebook clicks. I think no, Facebook are clicks fake. are like a whole panel in and of themselves. Yeah. So we can have that over Vimeo a Vimeo clicks are like the only type I trust. Like but I think again, it goes back to like, what do you want? Like at the end of the day, when the grandkids are on the knee or the little kitty that you're like doing this and being like, I used to, like, that's the question, right? Like that's, that's the thing that no, that's the non-sexy thing that nobody wants to talk about because it's not about making work, it's about making a life for yourself. And that's the tricky thing. So I think if you, just want people to be aware of your work, then yeah, you want as many people aware of your work as possible, and that's like the goal. 
but like from like a business standpoint, like what to you is like a successful web series? Like how many, like what, can you say like a broad range of hits that is? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Vimeo would say 5,000 and so would YouTube. So I took this crazy tour of YouTube and I won't go on too big of a tangent, but just YouTube is like, if you smoke crack cocaine and went to Disney World, and you then wandered around, like you literally take a secret elevator up and they have like all this stuff, right? That you as, if you have 5,000 people following your web series or your web-based content, you can go there and you can sign up to use their white coffin. You can sign up and use their studio and all the equipment for free, right? Because by building your brand, you're building their brand. But that subscribers, not hits, right? That's you need 5,000 subscribers. It's, it depends on how you've monetized the series. Is it behind a paywall? Is it not? So on Vimeo, they would say the same thing. They're going to start paying attention to you, and by that I mean either they're going to look at you as a staff pick, and they have such a large network of, whether it's television executives or advertising people or just curatorial people that they want to know about who's rising on their site that they're gonna pay special attention to. So I think it starts at 5,000, and I think that as you go on, if you're starting to get into six-figure likes or hits or clicks, and I think you can start to do, again, I wouldn't think about Facebook right now, but with the others, it, it, it just, um, it takes you to a different echelon. So it's the six-figure click is kind of like the, the, the brass ring, I guess, right now. Yeah. I, I, I love short-form content, and I do hope that there will be in the future, like more ways to watch it like you know more shows that are like variety shows of short form stuff like that where I know it's going to be good because I make internet videos for a living and I don't even watch internet videos like barely ever because like I just don't sit down for like hours at a time like I, I I'm thinking of having friends over and being like all right we're all going to like figure out what the best things on Vimeo are and watch them but we I just like I just never do it so that was the creepiest thing I have to say is this without being recorded, but like, I can't tell you how many execs sat down and were like, this is such a great project. How short can we make it? How fast can we make it? Right? And they're talking like nine seconds. They're talking like a Vine video, like boom, 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 boom. It's small, digestible bites. And not every story is right for that. And so I think that there's this time-based model that, you know, we talk about short form content and we're gonna look at both of your work. Your work is short, your work is medium short, but people are really looking for small digestible bites because that they can serialize, they can sell advertising off of, they can get it to their boss to watch it, quite frankly. It's really, yeah. it's nutty potatoes. Like, I don't agree with it. It just, that was probably the most frightening kind of revelation for me personally sitting in that room was smaller, faster. Yeah, and hopefully the tide will turn on that. Like, it has to because I think as people start putting more time into what they're making and more care and more love, um, and start making longer things, I think that'll get attention and just more people need to do it. And then it'll follow where people realize like, okay, like that is great. And I think like in the podcasting world, Mystery Show is a great example um, where uh, Starly Kind s only made six episodes for like, the, she spent like a year doing it or something. And like to most bosses that would be like really scary. Like we can only sell ads on six things. But so many people downloaded every episode because it was great and, and it was so nice to have these like hour-long pieces that were so so involved that they like got way beyond the number of 
like listeners that the advertisers had expected. And she had a quota that where she was supposed to do like eight or ten episodes, and she only delivered six, but she got so many people listening on those six that her boss, <laughs> instead of being like, no, you have to do ten, like in this timeline, was like, okay, that's great, you know? Um, and the advertisers were really happy. So hopefully, um, I, I really hope that the trend starts changing because like, yeah, right now it's crazy. And, and doing these short videos for This American Life, like I had as much time as I wanted. Like I didn't have that much money, but I just like having the time to like really not put it out until you think it's great is so valuable. And that's the problem is like when I go on the internet, it's there's just so much like gar garbage that like people just felt like some pressure to pump out. And I don't, I don't think that's. The, the one the one thing that I, I, I showed someone the other day is uh, the figures on un unboxing videos. I don't know if you've ever watched an unboxing video, but they get into the six figures really, really quickly. And I found it so depressing. And I really try, I really, and I mean, I, I genuinely, I try not to be, I, I feel like sometimes I'm snobby about, the, uh, I'm, I'm snobby about spaces that I know nothing about. And I really try not to do that. But unboxing videos were my undoing. Like they were... I just, I, I hit an internet brick wall with those things and I just, I've never really quite recovered. Um, but so, so one, one thing I, you know, I think is something I think about a lot is like how do we create different economies and different spaces and different curated spaces online? And how do we both embrace some of these changes because I think some of them are super exciting and resist some of the things that make us uncomfortable and I think for really good reasons. Like I absolutely hear what you're saying. And you know, I think I keep thinking about Wolfen. I don't know if you, you know, remember Wolfen and like, what would like what would Wolfen on the web look like now? You know, what could that space be? Wolfen was this amazing DVD series of short films. They did they did 15 DVDs and then, you know, I think they realized the DVDs were not going to pay the bills. Um, but you know, I, I I think about that that a lot. I think it's a really interesting. I think it's something that we all have to grapple with, especially if we want to make good work and we want that work to be seen. That said, can we see some of your work? Yeah. Can I if you put your hands up? Who's seen Scared is Scared? Okay, that's enough of a minority of things. Okay, yeah. Do you guys care about seeing it again? They wanted to show it, so I feel like, yeah. Most popular thing, so we'll learn about what's yeah. popular. So, did your mom tell you what I'm doing? Yes. Uh, do you have any stories that you would want to be a movie? Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, maybe, 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 maybe. <laughs> I could, can't even. I don't even know what happened. Yes, yesterday. Hmm. A movie with no words. <laughs> no. Um, you can show the word start in a box and then and then you can make an equal sign and then a box wait the start would be orange i mean i mean i'm green the box would be green and the start would be white i can tell you a little story um ace of bear and tokino story um it's an ace of bear and a toby who's a mouse Okay, so we'll have someone pretend to be a bear mm -hmm. and pretend to be a mouse. Mm -hmm. Like somebody small and somebody big. There was an Ace of Bear who lived in the middle, um, I mean in the woods, and there was a Toby Mouse who lived in the stone wall 
with his six brothers and seven six sisters. Um, and one day, the um, big enormous great ace of air um, decided told to the little tiny mouse, I, I think we should go to the swimming um, pool. The Toby Mouse agreed. Only the swimming pool won't be real. It will just like kind of be a big circle of cardboard that you painted blue, so that um and and then black waves. Oh, why not a real swimming pool? Um, because then their costumes would get all wet. But they could do that. They went to the um pool, and the Toby Mouse put his feet in, and the Ace Bear jumped right in. I would, I would, I would do all this. I would do sound effects too. <laughs> when they dive in and, and, and go when they were swizzling in the water and go when they went underwater. The t he, um, he carried the Toby Mouse around in the pool then he told the Toby Mouse to hold his breath and close his eyes. And he dunked him underwater and then he came back up. And he he swam with the Toby Mouse, with the Toby Mouse holding onto his fur on the on his back. And he jumped on the on off of the diving board into the pool um, when the Toby Mouse was ready. And it, they had a very, very fun time. There, the, then it was time to go home. And they were like, I wish we could come back again. No, why shouldn't we have, why can't we have another time here? Because I thought, but the swimming pool is closing up for the whole winter. Okay, we can have it next spring. And, and they went home, the end. And the end would be written in orange, and then the whole box would be white. The point of this story is you don't really want to go when something's closing, because then you'll have to wait to go back there. Yeah, I'm about to graduate in three weeks, and it sort of feels like my school is closing for me, you know? Yeah, um, if like something feels like you're, you're closing, you, sh you should just say, okay, I'm fine. I usually let it go. I just think, think of something that I really like to do and just... You just think of something else until the, the nervous has gone out of you. I let that thing disappear out of my head, out of my ears, out of my mouth. It's just like, I'm scared of this thing. When the scared feeling comes into you, the scared is scared of things you like. So um, I was scared of a monster, and I thought of pizza <laughs> and juice and some and some meringues and a cookie, chocolate chip cookie. I mean oatmeal cookie. <laughs> and then I ate it all up and some milk. 
and the cookie was shaped like a piano, a keyboard, I mean. Yeah. Oh, that's true. That's good advice. That's why I just need to think of things I like when I'm scared. Mm-hmm. Asa Bear and Toby Mouse going to do when the pool closes? They have so much that they can do in winter. There are stories about winter, there are stories about um, other things. I, I have heard they once even had a sleepover without a winter. So it's a happy ending. Mm-hmm. It is. Are you hungry? Yes! For cookies and red sauce. And pizza. Pizza. Awesome, thank you. <laughs> so you, you should check out all that, that Bianca's other work. It's, um, it's, it's all online, I assume. So you can, go and, you can go and see the other amazing pieces she's made. But um, I really, I really uh, love the way you bring audio and video together. And I think it's really interesting thinking about this idea of how audio is delivered online and the primacy of video. Um, which obviously for those of you who are filmmakers is great news, um, but it is really interesting thinking about like how things get received and I'm always thinking about my role as a consumer now, like what, what I sit down at the end of a long day at work to watch and how I watch it because I think sometimes we forget that we're also actually the, the audience. Um, all right, I think with that we're going to move on to Alexandra. You can talk a little bit about Do Not Track in your work at Upian. Um. Yeah, uh, for those who don't know me, so I'm, I'm Alex, I'm 42, I'm living in Paris. Um, and uh, for years now, I'm doing an online documentary. And uh, I mean, I don't know where this comes to me, but uh, I discovered internet a long, long time ago, in uh, 1994. And uh, like, I was like really, really impressed by uh, hypertext. Like, whoa. You have a text, you can click on it. Like, it was like awesome. And uh, really, seriously. And, uh, 
and I, I, I always felt that uh, internet was, a, was, was the place for storytelling. That was the best place for telling stories. So do, I mean, for years, uh, technology and, and access to the internet, computer, were, were not like uh, enough strong. And then, of course, now everyone see that we, we tell online, we tell stories online. My point, and with my team, because I, uh, I'm the head of a uh, production company, so we call UPN. Uh, we are uh, 15 people working daily, and, and um, uh, what we try to do is what kind of story uh, can we tell online that, that can be told only online. I mean, I mean by that, if you go to see me, if you're a director, if you're an author, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, mean, I don't want you to be a geek. At first, I, I want you to tell a, a really strong story, but I, w I want you to be sure that this story cannot be told uh, uh, in a, on TV or on cinema. Otherwise, like, let's go to a cinema, let's go for TV, let's go for books, let's go for radio, for sure. And uh, so, I mean, this, this is a bit of context. So my team, for instance, is like one third producer, project manager, one third uh, web designer, artistic director, um, multimedia director, and one third technical guys like HTML and, and, and back and front. And, um, and I met Brett, the director of uh, Do Not Track at IFA. A lot of things uh, are connected to IFA with this program. Um, I met Brett, uh, it was like seven years or eight years ago here. Um, uh, I was here with Casas de Rod and uh, he was here with uh, RIP, uh, the Remix Manifesto, kind of pamphlet, a documentary, a, a piece of art about big issue in the last century, uh, I mean last decade, sorry, uh, that was about like copyright. And um, he came three years ago to Paris uh, to see me with, with this new, new issue about privacy. And we used to say with Brad that we were really thinking that copyright was a huge issue, but, but actually, uh, uh, I mean, if you compare this issue to, to, to privacy, I think now that, I mean, the, the, the way we deal with privacy today is really, really a strong issue. Um, I'm gonna show you like short uh, sentence. So Do Not Track is a personalized documentary series about privacy in the web economy. Uh, there is two words in this sentence. It's personalized and serious. So we Im immediately came uh, to the idea of of Siri for many, many reasons, and uh, I'm gonna try like, to give you a short overview of the program and, and then go um, on this Siri, Siri uh, issue. So, I mean, it's, it's obvious, like, everything you do online is recorded, everything. You use your mobile phone, you use your computer, you go on a website, everything is recorded. And the, 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 the topic of Dynatrack is, is, is to bring awareness to everyone, like just for you to know who's recorded. Uh, do you agree that everything is recorded? Do you know the people that record uh, your information? And we're not talking about NSA. We're not talking about state surveillance. We're talking about mostly about economy. What are these companies that are recording your information for, for making money on it? So this is Brad Geller. Have you noticed the internet getting creepier? It used to feel like a fun, magical place, but these days, something feels off. It seems like a few companies are getting rich, 
and the rest of us get tracked. And the more things are targeted to us, the less equal we become. So a group of makers and public media folks got together to explore what is happening. From our mobile phones to social networks, from personalized advertising to big data, we want you to understand the value of your privacy. So we're going to ask you to let us track you. During each episode of Do Not Track, you'll be able to use your own data to understand how information about you is used by others. We'll give you more knowledge so you'll have more power. Let's track the trackers together. So um, you can watch the entire program in the exhibit. And uh, I just want to let, yeah, come back to my thing. Thank you. Um, the thing is that if you go to Do Not Track, each one of you will have a different experience. All the story is based on what we know about you, about you personally. This is the answer to the, the question I, I, I asked before. I cannot tell the story uh, other way, I mean, anywhere else than online. Because we're going to ask you step by step a few things about you. We're going to ask you the website you go to visit. We're going to ask you a lot of questions. We record this question and we personalize the content to each people. How, how better way to tell a story about data than uh, using your own data? Because that's a very difficult thing to do. Like, I mean, technical issues were like really, really strong. But so it's, it's a very different type of series. Like we all love series, like, like I mean, we, we love series for many reasons. It can be book, it can be podcast, it can be TV. Or, and uh, and so, so we were like a lot of people to work uh, coming from all different, different uh, origin countries. And, uh, and, and we were like, wh what can we do online if we bring like a new sense of the, uh, for the series? What can be a series with online? So first answer is personalization. Personalization means that, I mean, I, I have said that before, but also depending on the country you, can, you, you access the program. If you are in France, coming from France, you have uh, Vincent Glad on the screen, which is a French journalist. If you, if you access the program from uh, in, uh, uh, West Canada, this is Brett. If you access the program from Germany, this is uh, Richard Gutierrez. So this is the same content, more or less, I mean, there is a part of common content and there is a part of localized content. This will be also very useful in terms of production, meaning that there is like three big co-producers, uh, Canada, Germany, and France. So each country can bring at some point, like episode one and two are mostly French produce. Episode three is mostly German produce. Episode four is most uh, is it's French again, and episode five is, is Canadian. So you can join the forces to make the series like at, I mean by that that, for instance, also in terms of communication, like the third episode which was German was much more promoted uh, in Germany. So you can like bring different because the discussion you had on the audience. Uh, I mean, internet is, is is a niche audience. Like we all know that. We don't try to reach the mainstream audience. We, we just try to make the best content that we can, and we try to address niche audience. And maybe if you had a, a different niche audience, then it make a bit of a large audience. I don't know if I'm clear. Hmm? So episode, seven episode, and we, we launched uh, first couple at the beginning, then, then three, four, five 
uh, each two weeks, and then six and seven at the end. So sometimes a couple, sometimes just one. And then, so localization, I, I, I've thought about that, so you see the different main characters depending on the country. And then a, a, a conversation, like between the episode, we, we are like a, a system, like email, uh, polls, and um, uh, social network, etc. And uh, that was really, really important. Like the people, when they, when they start to like the series, they also, start, they also start to like to be in touch with the people of the, creating the series. And uh, the figures have, have been like really awesome. Like each time that we were sending an email, the people answering very quickly and, and sending back like emails saying, whoa, yes, thank you guys. Like you, you create communication and this is also something like unique that you, you can do online. So yeah, I'm gonna go quick and go to the figure. Yeah, it, it's it's a monster. So I mean, but that like it's three years production and uh, ninety percent uh, and thousand of messages and etc. It's it's a Google Doc experience too. Uh, this one is really uh, really really important. Uh, everyone think that what they what they see on the screen is a video, but it's not a video. I mean, it looks like a video, but it's not. It's really made with real time element. So, so there is some issue, techno technology issue, but this is also that, that what that allow us to tailor the storytelling. But it means that you cannot make pause or back, I mean, pause you can, but you cannot go back. Or so just like, because you were talking about figures, uh, this is all the figures, but actually we are like reaching one million of visits. And, and, and you know, online you can track everything. I mean, obviously. Uh, so you know exactly where the people click, where they leave, how, how many minutes that, that they watch. So, so this is something that we, we don't, um, I mean, we, we watch it, but we, we do not really care about, I mean, because we think that, that otherwise we really, it's not any more creation, I mean. But, but if, the band, if the average duration had been a minute, would you, you would have cared about that. I mean, it, it would have been that uh, it, it was a fail, a failure. I mean, this duration is, is more or less uh, the duration of one episode. So it's a very good one. Uh, the bounce rate is very low too, which is, which I don't know if you, any, anyone knows what is a bounce rate. No. Maybe just, yeah, <laughs> describe it. Huh? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the number of, the percentage of people that leave the program immediately when they come. I mean, they go on the homepage and they don't click to start. So it's very low. So it means that the people that, that were coming knew, wha knew why they were coming. So it's a very good one too. And this is, this is also something very interesting uh, uh, when you track your audience, is that, because this is the aim of the program, of course, it's, it's, uh, most of the people are 25, 34, which is something broadcasted they love. Mm -hmm. And mostly women. I show you that because that also like huge promise from the internet, like can you really address the, you know, the world? And uh, I tried to do that by the past. I mean, this is maybe the first time that this is a success, like to be able to really have people coming from all over the world. And, uh, and this is due to the fact that it's an international co-production. I mean, there is border online, that's, that's obvious. I mean, it, and, it, and it's also technical. So if you want, coming from France, if you want to address a German audience, you have to have a German partner and you have to have a German content. I mean, you have to, I don't know, but, but it's 
Facebook. And uh, let's see, this is some figures. And, and, and something I, ju I just like did like a, a few days because I knew I was uh, talking about that. It's, it's, it's really the, the to show the efficiency of the Siri online. Like, meaning that there is like always like a, a third, or, I mean 30% or 40% that the people are, are coming back. So they, we have a strong relationship. You know, it, it worked, like, I mean, in this case, I mean, Do you think you would have built such a strong relationship if you'd released them all at once? Like for binge viewing? Do, uh, you, do you think you needed no, the time to build that? No, I think, I think what, what worked on Dinner Track was this series aspect, and, uh, and we, we, I mean, and this is, I mean, we were reading emails, social network tweets, Facebook, etc. people, like, uh, reacting like for a series on Netflix. You know, and, and it's a very tough one. It's documentary, even if it's entertaining and, uh, and, and very well crafted, and it's still documentary. So this relationship with the audience was really, really uh, uh, interesting. Yeah. Let's talk about the money. So, um, I'm, I'm always the guy who talks about money. So, okay, so, um, yeah, huge budget. Um, so first, for me, it's a good sign. See, you, you see that we, we can produce online content with this kind of uh, budget. It means that there is a kind of economy. Like a few years ago, the first question was, what the economical uh, model? Okay, it's the same as it is in the documentary field. It's exactly the same. Okay, you. I mean, in my case, it's not general. In my case, we do co-production, so we have a budget. We 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 find free co-producer, in this case, Arte, NFB, and the BR, then pre-buyers, so Radio Canada, RTS, is the Swiss uh, public uh, service TV, and AG+, and then the producer part, my part, is, is almost 270,000 euros, including the help of the Cent National Center of Cinematography and Tribeca. Tribeca is, is $100,000, I put six, uh, 60,000 euros because there is a lot of taxes. Like <laughs> the money when she come from, yeah. when the money come from the USA, that means there is someone in between that take like woof, huge part. Yeah, that's actually a bit, it's a real issue um, for international funding. It's something that we've really had to grapple with. So this is what more or less, yeah. Yeah, just grab the mic. Hello, my name is Marisa Ricola. <laughs> I'd like to know more about the content if possible. Sure. Do you want, uh, for sure, if you do. Can do you want to play the, yeah. the first episode? Yeah. That would that help to actually see the content? Okay. We've all got our addictions. We've all got our routine. Mine is to wake up, get caffeine, and go online. A little bit on a desktop, a bit on my phone. Over the morning, I give away gigabytes of information about myself, and I give it without being asked. This is my name. This is where I live. This is me on Twitter, and these are my photos. All this I share out of habit. I guess it's also part of the routine. Some would even call it an addiction. But there's a lot that I share without knowing it, and so do you. For instance, I know right now 
that this is the country you live in. I know that it's a shitty afternoon. I know that you're on a Mac. These are things I know just from where you're accessing this website before the day even gets started. So let's start the day. Part of my everyday routine is to see what the world is doing. Tell me where you go to get your news. that you're seeing represents the site you are visiting right now. The red dots represent third parties who are notified each time you visit that site. Some of these third parties are called trackers, an ecosystem of data collection agencies that compare where you are on the web right now to where you've been before. And each time you browse, they learn more about you. Let's go back to my day. Now I'm distracting myself from work by looking for something funny. What about you? Where do you go for laughs? Now that we've browsed between two sites, do you see the connections between the dots? What that means is that your browsing history is being recorded. Not just what you do on a single site, but where you are coming from and where you go next. It isn't the website you're visiting that's collecting this data. There's usually a couple of other parties watching you. For example, you might have an advertising network dropping what are called cookies. Small, unique files that live on your computer and record your activities on that page. When you visit another site on the same ad network, the ad network begins to build your profile. They can then sell this information to anyone who might want to speak, sell, or present directly to you. Often when you see an ad on the internet, there's been an instantaneous analysis of who you are, and an ad is chosen by auctioning your profile off to whoever bids highest to reach people similar to you. In my case, lefty Canadian dads who read nerdy science fiction. On some sites, I build this profile myself. I buy stuff at Amazon, and I watch shows on Netflix, and they suggest things I might like. You can see that they don't need to use any tracking networks. I give them this information myself. The art of tracking is figuring out who I am without me providing that info. If you're getting great news or funny videos without paying, odds are someone is paying for your attention. At this point, you might be asking, shouldn't I be happy that I'm not seeing ads, search results, and social network feeds targeted at conservative voters in Texas? The web is great at showing me what I want, but if we each see something personal, how can we be equal? Maybe you wonder if you should be concerned at all that what you do online is tracked. If we have nothing to hide, who cares who is watching? It's no longer about you. It's about how what you put out there affects everybody else. When you become a part of this, this system of data, you're... So I'm gonna quit because it's a bit long, but then so you have these kind of people like we, we interview a lot of people. This first episode obviously is a huge introduction, so that's why there is this kind of storytelling, like very uh, uh, 
pedagogical because it's it's the first one, and uh, and then I, I do very briefly uh, the topic. Second one is is really is really uh, going deeply into the the business of advertising. Third one is really really interesting, if, especially if you like Facebook, which is not my case. But if you are very active on Facebook, you're going to be uh, very impressed. It's it's really about. Uh, uh, what can we know about the, the content that you post and the content that, that you like on? And this information, uh, uh, can they be used by some third parties like your bank or your insurance financial companies? And, and this third episode is mixing video in the Facebook app inside the video. So we're gonna do this demonstration with you on account, it's really impressive. Uh, fourth one is about uh, mobile, this little spy that you have in your pocket, and it's, it's much more a cartoon. Uh, it's craft as a cartoon, and it's a mini-series inside the series. Um, fifth one is, is, is really about big data. Uh, do we really need to fear about that? Do this company, uh, are this company really able to analyze this huge amount of data? That, and, and six is much about the filter bubble. Filter bubble, uh, I don't know if you you know, it, it's, it's a guy called Eddie Pariser that bring this, this theory a few, a few years ago. He did a test, he had two friends, in the, an American guy, and, and he asked uh, one friend is a Republican, one friend is a Democrat, and he asked them to search for keyword in Google and uh, Egypt. And he compared the first, the result of the, the front page, the first page. The Republican, he has like, uh, scuba diving uh, and uh, pyramid tourism in Egypt. And the Democrat, he has like a spring revolution and Arab spring revolution and political stuff. So that was really, really impressive. Like to see how Google know what kind of content fits with you. Now it's much more difficult to, to make this example because the algorithm is, is like really better and better. But this filter bubble is also something that we need because otherwise if you, if you look for, you are looking for pizza. Uh, of course, if you are in Los Angeles, you, you're happy that you have the same result that you are in Paris. So it's, it's a really interesting episode about like, yeah, and the, and the evolution of the press, etc. And seven one is, is it's, it's, it doesn't close, it opens the debate and there is several uh, ending uh, possibility to the theory depending on what we know about you if you, if you have done the, the theory. The Facebook one's really interesting because it told me that I would not qualify for a loan because I'm likely to give up a job without having another one to go to based on my Facebook profile <laughs> because I was too creative. I was like, that's awesome. Um, thank you. Um, I really recommend, if you haven't seen this project yet, dig in because I, I thought I understood tracking online and until I saw this, I didn't realize like, quite how intricate and complicated it is. And what's really cool is it actually does also tell you some things that you can do. Um, so it's not just saying like here you are, you're kind of screwed. Um, it does it does actually give you some some things that you can do to moderately take control of. I say moderately because I sort of feel like we are kind of screwed. Um, okay, I think we should maybe open this up uh, a little bit to some questions, just so that we can make sure that we're answering questions you have. Um, I think there's another question here. Hi, I'm the same person. Um, my background is in new media. I used to design CD-ROMs. Uh, and I used to make interactive video installations and stuff like that. I wonder, uh, I mean, uh, obviously I haven't seen it, so I don't know. How interactive is this piece? I mean, as I can see is that I can fill in some data and then uh, the, the video takes me somewhere else. 
based on what I pulled in. Is that so? I would direct you to this. It's, 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 it's an, I mean, it depends on what we call interactive. It's, it's much more like uh, a linear experience with uh, engagement more than click and uh, it's engagement and using and using what the data that you feel so it's much more using the let's say the i mean uh, the, the all this this organic or living material that we have online i mean this cannot work if you unplug the the the, the network the the wi-fi or or the cable it's it's, it's totally co connected it's much more connected than interactive I don't know if I didn't answer. Great, and I, I think this. I, I, sorry, I don't understand. What is connected? It just, I mean, it cannot work if it's not online. Okay, I understand that. No, no, okay, well, uh, maybe I didn't uh, make myself clear. I just wonder how you have structured that work. Is it like, uh, is it like, uh, let's say, hundred times three minute films, or what is your information structure on that work? It's 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 seven it, it's seven linear short films okay, that so that okay. where you, but you can put things like for example there you could put like what you're reading and other points you can link it to your Facebook account so it's a linear web series that is connected to the you, that you can only use if you're connected online and it's it's taking data from you and then feeding it back to you. Okay. Does that? Thing, do I have to pay for it if I go online? Or? No, you already paid for it before with your taxes. <laughs> your taxes, taxes paid no, for it's it. It's public money, so it's free. Yeah, uh, yeah. Actually, I think that's a really interesting point, that's though. Is is what does public media look like online? And that that's something that I think is a really fascinating. Like, if we're trying to preserve spaces outside of the market for this work, then what does public media look like online? And then how? How can we work? Like, what what does the sort of public discourse look like online? Because I think that's something that often doesn't really get talked about. You know, we still think about public media as being this dusty, this dusty thing that's tied to broadcasters and television. But I feel like they are really sort of having to engage with this too. What does a network public look like in terms of public media? I think there was another question right here. Hi, I'm Maya. Um, I'm uh, actually a documentary filmmaker, but I got hired uh, one and a half years ago by the newspaper in Holland uh, because they said, okay, all these people from 16 till 35, we're not reaching them anymore, so what should we do? And I got hired with a bunch of other people to launch a new platform, which is especially for that. So we make online content, documentary, photo, everything. And one of the things that I learned that um, of all the content that's being used, only 5% of those people actually go to our website. Um, and 95% uh, is uh, social media. And of that 95%, another 95% is Facebook. So Facebook actually has a really big role in online documentary, as far as I can tell. And also, they make a lot of money out of it <laughs> because you pay to get in the news feeds of people and everything. So, and I, I was just wondering, how is your how is your experience? Because you told all these stories, and is this all the views that you get, are, is that just on the website, or is that also a social media views, or uh, how, how? what's your experience with that? I'd say that the web series we're working on, which range from very traditional to very avant weird, um, they're looking for eyeballs. Um, I'd say 
probably at least half are looking to either define themselves as artists or to get as many people watching, talking about, interacting with their work as possible. And from your point, whether it's social media, whether it's partnerships with other platforms, whether it's partnerships with other support organizations, their idea is not to show a little leg, it's to throw their skirt over their head and shake it. You know, I mean, it's a very different modeling. And I think that it, it really, again, depends on the goal, but I think you're absolutely right. Most people are not gonna go to the primary site. They're going to, it's almost like a game of telephone. It's like my friend told my friend and then they told their mom and then their mom told their book club. I mean, it's like very old fashioned in a way, but it's also very new media in a way. But I think that to your point, if there's a piece of content that's out there that's getting those six figure hits, it's in my humble opinion, it's very rare to have people going to the native site where that was created it's really, it kind of takes on a life of its own. But the more places it is by math, the more places it will spread. But that also makes it harder to make money from writing if people are going to your website with you. That's right, so this is a big question that even you brought up. I mean, even as something that um, is as established as something like YouTube, it, there's a big debate going on within the creative community of should it be behind a paywall, should it not, and when? So if you are an unknown, but maybe the topic is something that's got a, a built-in audience on the documentary side, should you put it behind a paywall? Because then you're, you know that you're making money. That's behind a paywall, anybody that clicks has to get it. That said, in the internet economy, most people don't want to pay for content. They want to read People Magazine at their dentist's office, they don't want to get a subscription. It's it, again, just taking it back to the old days, it's the same thing. You want to read that article and, and kind of get rid of it. So I think if you're looking to make money, oftentimes it, it either comes with an advertiser base, a subscriber base, uh, public funding, quite frankly, um, sponsored funding, or you're partnering with some sort of online technology, meaning you're making 15-second Vine videos and Vine is helping because you're using their platform or Snapchat is another one that people use. So I know an animation company that is partnered with Snapchat and they are making amazing short documentaries and narrative work, nine seconds long. And for every, they get paid to make them, like a production company pays them to make it, and then they have a deal with Snapchat that as they go, they, the more that it goes viral, the more that they, the, the price increase. So if they're getting a penny for the first 500 and then a dime for the first 5,000, once again, they hit that golden, ring of 100,000, then they're making money on it. But I think journalism is a very different thing because it's a very different model in each country too. Can I just do a, a very quick, totally unscientific poll? Um, like how many of you in the audience, how many of you in the, you in the audience are makers in terms of like video makers of whatever description? Like how many of you, so m most of you probably. And how many, how, how do I phrase this? How many of you are excited about what the current internet economy is allowing you to do in your work? Like how many of you find it mostly positive? And how many of you feel quite strongly that it's, it's, it's ha it has a negative effect on your work? I know those, this, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing I'm phrasing this very unscientifically. All right, so like very few people have a negative feeling about it. That's interesting. Um, because, because one of the conversations, I mean, I, I feel like in these conversations, what I'm often getting is creatively people are really inspired practically people are very terrified. Like it feels like creatively there's this like amazing opportunity for anyone to make 
kinds of work that are not limited by the formats that you have to deliver them on or the gatekeepers, but practically in terms of paying the bills and making a living and creating a body of work, it's scary. Am I, am I, do you think that's a, do you think that, do you think, Bianca, do you think that's a fair? Well, I've just never expected to make money off of a short film, so the fact that we're even talking about that, I'm like, whoa, like that never occurred to me. That said, like, everything you do and put out there, like, builds to help you make money in other ways. So I don't think, I never think of the money coming from the video. I think of the money coming for me as an artist based on, But at what point do you get paid? I mean, which bits are you getting paid for? Uh, directing ads, which they hire you because they like your work, work that isn't ads. So you're not going to get work directing ads unless you make cool work that is not ads because ads are not cool. Interesting. So the, the unpaid stuff feeds the paid stuff, and then you do one ad, feel really depressed, and then make a lot of money, and then try not to do an ad for as long as possible. But you do reach an interesting moment where like say you're doing all the, you're hustling, you put out all these internet videos, suddenly you're getting offered a lot of ads where you can make a lot of money. And it's really hard to say no and to, and to keep making stuff that you wanna make because suddenly there's an opportunity cost. So that to making your, so it's not, about, it's not about the money that you're, it's not about the fact that you're not getting paid to make stuff for the internet, it's about the fact that you're not, you would be getting paid to make an ad with that and it takes a lot of like courage and strength, I think, to say no to doing ads. And it's really hard. And especially if you're signed to a production company, which is probably the next step, like once you get, you know, your stuff online gets noticed, then they might, you know, they might be interested in you making ads, you sign a production company you trust. Like as soon as that money with the ad stuff gets involved, it all becomes very complicated. And how separate do you keep your ads from your work? Um, that's like a, another really important question and like something I'm dealing with right now. And like I'm interesting to advertisers because of my personality. So my identity is useful for them in marketing. So where do I draw the line and what, what jobs can I get without bringing that to the table? And um, like, you know, should I try to get jobs that are totally different from the work that I like doing, how much do I mix it? How much does that make like the work that I like doing like no longer feel authentic to me? Like it all gets really sloppy and um, I, I, I find it incredibly hard to keep it separate. So like I just try to do as few ads as possible but it's, you reach that moment where someone's offering you a lot of money to do something for the first time or for the second or third or fourth or fifth time. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say no. So I think a lot of it about developing your personal style and personal brand and brand I know is like a gross word that I hate <laughs> even using and again if somebody has a better word I'm, I'm all ears but I think that you know for better or worse the more you make work whether it's that horrible seven second vine video that actually might be getting somebody's attention in a way that a short form documentary or a long form expensive curated you know web web based design you're making work and I think that the hardest thing we've seen I mean you know again trust free our artists are, are like just shy of being below the poverty level. Like when you look at our membership, nobody's rolling in money that's starting out in kind of creative industries in the US. That said, the more work that they have in their portfolio, the, the more work that is able to be seen. 
Also, let's just remember this, is, this, this ad making in the documentary world is not limited to the new world of the internet. Errol Morris has been making ads for years mm -hmm. to make a living. A lot of documentary, traditional documentary filmmakers have always supported themselves making ads. Um, and it's never really talked about in settings like this. So this and is not, this is not just the internet. And, and ads that are documentaries make me really nervous too. Like I, that whole idea, just, I don't know. Hi, my name is Mary. I had a quick question. I, again, just digging in a little bit on this financing question, because for me, um, coming from a, a place of working mostly on the journalism side uh, and the, the documentary side, I'm very attracted to the Do Not Track project, but I don't know how in the world that could have been financed in the United States. And so just wondering if you have some, some feedback on, on financing across the pond, those types of projects. Well, um, it's always difficult to compare journalism and, and, uh, and documentary because, I mean, I mean, from my experience, I mean, I, I work a lot with journalists in France and and a newspaper uh, can be a partner, but cannot be involved in a co-production with us because we don't deal with the same amount of money. When you need to make a movie, you all know that you need a budget. You need a budget to do the research, you need a budget to pay the director, the DOP, the editor, all the people working on it, and, and this is the role of the producer, to bring enough money to allow creators to work properly and decently and, and to be honest with Do Not Track, uh, even if the amount of budget is like, could be high for, for some of you, it's not high for some, of, some, some others. I mean, a lot of documentary liner are funded much more than that. And there is a part of the budget that is bring in, in, in industry. This is not only cash, by the way. This is not like 7,000 coming to the European uh, bank account and then you do what you want with the money. This is much more complicated than that. So, so at the end, we can say that it costs seven hundred thousand, and it's it's but it's not not only in cash, of course. And then it's bring it's brought to us uh, thanks to the maybe the special ecosystem that uh, that exists in Europe and especially in France with these uh, uh, public broadcaster uh, that that allow creators, producer, director. I mean, to finance their program for years and years in the documentary field, and the National Center of the, uh, of the Cinematography that decided 10 years ago, I mean, seven years ago, to also finance cre online creation. And I think that's really important. I mean, I mean, especially, like, I'm sorry, like, uh, I'm a bit weird. I mean, you know what happened uh, last week in Paris? We all, I mean, all like, whoa, you know? We're like, wow, how can, can it be possible? Like, like, and uh, I mean, so we need public service. We need that. We need channel. We need people that bring a very clever information uh, that uh, that is not leaded by the business and uh, and uh, advertising. I'm sorry about to say that, but we need public service more than than before. We need people that that make program not for reaching 10 million of people. We need people that make complex stories. We need people that trust director. So. So I'm fighting for uh, public service uh, like exists more and more because we all know that the government they cut they cut the budget. So 
I'm a bit messy, but but and 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 thanks to Tribeca, thanks to AG Plus, we have an American partner. So my answer could be also make international co-production, and it's maybe it's tough. It's a it's a huge work, but at the end, it allows you to make like big things maybe, maybe by adding like several budget. Although you can never do an official co-production in the U.S. because we don't have co-production treaties, it makes it very difficult. But there is a lot of philanthropy. I mean, there is a lot of philanthropy money in the U.S. That's the one thing that we do have. So, I mean, there is no, it's, I think it's no accident, and it has to be said, and I absolutely second what you said about public service. It's no accident that some of the best work's coming out of Canada and France because they have public service money that's invested in this work. And it's tough in the U.S. We don't have that, and we should. And, and, and I mean... Going online, asking, asking, I mean, engaging the audience, it's, it's really a mission for a public service. I mean, it's, for me, that's, that's a, that, that could be a definition of public service. So. I think we have time for one more question and then we're going to have to wrap and s Wendy's got the mic. <laughs> Can you just maybe introduce yourself as well? Because Wendy yeah. Yeah. Wendy knows everything about rights all over the world in literally every single country in such detail that it actually makes my brain explode. Entangled reality, as someone said in the in the last um, in the, in the in the at the Doc Lab conference. Um, okay, I think I think I know that we've probably left more questions than answers, but I'm, I I think that that is the way we are all feeling. I mean, that comes out of what you were saying about your your lab, and we're all figuring this out. And and Wendy, that's a great point. Like increasingly talking about the web and TV as if they're these two completely separate things doesn't really make sense anymore. And maybe that can help us get over our feelings about web series being this like under 
cutting the creativity of what we're all talking about. So with that, thank you very, very much to my panelists for sharing their work and their thoughts. Thank you all of you for coming.